This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Okay, well, we can get started. I'd just like to pray. Father, again, I just thank you for the opportunity to share things that have helped me and have inspired me and have helped increase my faith. And I just pray that things I say will be able to do the same for others. And if people are struggling in this area, that the words spoken here will help them or maybe even help them to help somebody else who struggles with this. So I ask for the presence and power of your Holy Spirit here. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I don't know how many, some of you look like new faces, some faithful been here a while, but I've, this seminar is basically, it's based on this book I just bought. You can get over at the ABC, you can get at one of the booths over there. I, forget, I think Pacific Press is selling it, yeah. And it's called Baptizing the Devil, and the gist of it was, I had, well, very quick, about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I wrote an article in the Adventist Review called Seventh-day Darwinians. And I basically took the position that if you believe in evolution, you really don't belong in the Adventist church. Well, you'd think it would be a fairly uncontroversial position, but it caused a firestorm. And I'm not going to get into all the details of it, but it, but it shocked me. It shocked me that, you know, I could state what would seem to me to be the most obvious thing. I would state even the fact that, well, I'll repeat what I said yesterday, because I think it's worth repeating. Because this is the, some of the issue that we're dealing with. And I'm going to frame it this way purposely. If the majority of some of the world's smartest people, the PhDs, the Nobel laureates, the postdocs, the Rhodes Scholars, the PhDs in physics, in chemistry, in biology, in paleontology, in astronomy, all these, if the vast majority of them are right, are right about what they believe about origins, then I said, we're not going to go to hell because there is no hell. The scripture to me would be, is null and void. And I deal with this book. If, if they're right, I, Christianity cannot possibly be true, or at least the way it's depicted in the Bible. Okay, that's the issues that are at stake. And the thing is, I don't, it doesn't bother me. I believe that the vast majority of them are wrong, okay? And it doesn't bother me at all. I say it doesn't bother me at all. I guess there's always in your mind, but I spent a fair amount of time studying the philosophy of science. I mean, how is science done? What do you have to assume to do science? What, how, what justifies a scientific explanation? How do scientists, how are they justified in saying, well, we believe this is true? 
And I, and I spent years, and as I said to the research, I've got hundreds and hundreds of references in here. I spent years reading books on the philosophy of science as I was researching this book. And I'll say this, the vast majority, 98% of the people whom I read were atheists and or evolutionists. I think I reference one philosophy of science by a Christian. His name is Del Ratch. And as far as I know, he might even be an evolutionist. I don't really know. He probably, chances are, he probably is. Okay? And uh, so I'm saying the vast, of almost everything I learned, I learned from reading atheists and or evolutionists. And yet at the same time, it was, um, I have been liberated. I have been freed from, as I've said it numerous times yesterday, from the moment they say, but it's science. And as I said, and I'll repeat again, when someone throws that moniker out to you, but it's science, then what, is, what are we all supposed to do? We're supposed to submit and bow down and, and surrender all recalcitrant views because science is deemed the epistemological king. Once they say, but it's science, then any other form of knowledge is generally viewed as suspect if it contradicts that. That's the day and age we live in. And as I said before, I'll say it again, every age has myths. And the great myth of our age is the moment they say, but it's science, we have to surrender to it. And I spent some four hours yesterday going through that. And my last seminar now, I want to, I want to tie some of this in with what we believe as Adventists about last days and about the whole thing. Because I, this is not just... I mean, again, I'll say the issue. If all the vast majority of these scientists are right, if they're right, I'm sorry. I, if, if you were able, to, if you convinced me that they were right, I'd give up my faith. I just couldn't be, you know, some people seem to be able to harm it. I have a whole section in the back of my book where I show, and I'll even show some of the sad and pathetic attempts by Christians because here, here's the struggle that a lot of them have. They're Bible-believing Christians. They claim to be Bible-believing Christians. Say they love the Lord. But we live in a day and age where, well, it's science. And they've been told the overwhelming data, the overwhelming evidence in every field, genetics, paleontology, biology, and all this stuff, the evidence overwhelmingly points to evolution. So they got a problem. They want to believe the Bible, but they're convinced evolution's true. After all, it's science, and all these very smart, educated people all believe it, so they've got to try to find some way to mix, to say, okay, I'm going to interpret Scripture through the evolutionary model. And I won't have time to go into that today. I'm going to touch on one. 
I touched on it yesterday, I'll mention it again. One of our own theologians, or somebody who eventually left, the attempt to try to harmonize it. I mean, I have no, if, if they're right, our religion is a joke. Now, I know people would say to me, don't say that, Cliff, because there's some people are going to maybe leave the church. Well, if you believe in evolution, sooner or later you're going to end up. If you had a modicum, and I get people mad at me, I have a tendency to do that. <laughs> online, you know, people know me, I'm a real nice guy in person, but something happens to me and I get online. And I just, you know, I think the problem is, is in fact, I even got in legal trouble one time at the GC. I got the church sued, got my computer confiscated, and the lawyers were ready to throw me off the roof of the GC for, you know. In fact, even at one point, Ted Wilson had told me, Cliff, get off. You're probably better off not posting. But I wanted to post, so I basically, I just sort of forgot he told me. And I was posting, but then I got in legal trouble. And then I didn't forget then. I didn't forget that. Now I'm slowly getting back on, but I get, you know, anger on that and I put stuff, but I openly and unabashedly will challenge the intellectual integrity and moral honesty of anybody who takes the name Seventh-day Adventist and, who, and believes in evolution. If, you know, if you're going to believe that, have the, have, do you not have enough moral integrity to at least believe the name? You take for yourself Seventh Day, what does that stand for? I mean, is it too much to ask you? I don't, I, I, I don't want to get off on that. That's my, that's my hot button. That's my hot button. I can be there. I can just go through the roof on that one. But anyway, you, in case you hadn't noticed, yeah. But anyway, I, I dealt with that. I, now, and again, too, with this book, I did not write my book for Seventh-day Adventist per se. I wrote the book for any serious Christian who takes Scripture seriously, but who has been brainwashed and inundated by the vast propaganda machine which has got us convinced, well, it's science, the science teaches evolution, therefore evolution has got to be true. And a lot of people are a little more honest, say, I have a real hard time harmonizing that with the Bible. Well, good news, you don't have to try, because it's not true, okay, and despite the propaganda. So I wrote that for any of those in the two times, uh, on one part I deal with, and I'm going to talk about Sabbath today, but in the book, when I talk about the fact that even people who don't believe in a literal six-day creation do believe that the author, when he wrote that, meant a literal six-day creation with a literal seventh-day Sabbath. They meant that, and that would have been a perfect jumping-off point for me to get into the Sabbath, but I wouldn't do it. I said, regardless of where you think about the Sabbath-Sunday controversy, the fact is that these people believe it was meant literal because the people I'm trying to reach, if I bring the Sabbath to them, I'll lose them. I'll lose them, okay? And then the other point I bring up is, think about this too. I'm not going to have time to get into it today. I said to people, regardless of whatever you might think about what happens when people die, and I just left it at that, I said all serious Christians believe, really believe in the resurrection of the dead, okay? Now, when you read scripture, 
How fast does the resurrection happen? Instantaneously. So you got somebody who got, you know, eaten, thrown and, you know, burned at the stake 500 years ago. Or some Christian who got thrown into the Mediterranean Sea and, you know, thousand years ago, their body was eaten by crabs and shrimp or whatever. They're going to be instantly resurrected. Well, if God can do it that quickly, the second time, why did it take them billions of years to create us the first time? So I throw that question out as well, but without getting into the specifics of the state of the dead, because that's not what I was trying to do with this book. I was just trying to free people from the myth that, but it's science, then we have to surrender all beliefs to it. But anyway, that was sort of what I touched on, and now I want to try to pull it together a little bit with our belief as a Seventh-day Adventist. I don't, what I'm dealing with here, I, bear, I don't touch on in here, maybe just a little. And, uh, you know, if you open your Bibles in Genesis 1-1, I'll read it to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, it's John. Oh, I made a mistake. All right, let me try again. But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's not Genesis 1.1. One more try. Here is the patience of the saints. Here, you know, I, well, you know, commandments of God. Okay, what's my point here? What am I trying to say here? Man, I'm very thirsty. What's my point? Excuse me, I'm just very thirsty. My point is, the Word of God opens. It opens, not with the statement about atonement. Not with the statement about salvation. Not with the statement about the second coming. Not with the statement about the law. Not with the statement about the state of the dead, the sanctuary, anything. Instead, it opens with these words. Bereshi bara Elohim et hashamayim et haaretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, why do you think it begins with this? Well, I think it's because none of these other teachings, atonement, salvation, the second coming, the remnant, the commandments of God, none of these teachings make any real sense apart from the truth that we were created by God. I mean, what could any of these other teachings mean apart from the fact that God created it all? You know, I, anybody who's ever known me or read me knows I like philosophy. I read a lot of philosophy. And as I said yesterday, in some ways it's very helpful. In some ways it can so mess your brain up, you know. It can really get you off on uh, some of the wildest stuff. But, but I remember a lot of the stuff is nonsensical, but every now and then it, it, it can be helpful. 
And I remember there was an American philosopher named Richard Rorty. And Rorty, and Rorty was, he died a couple years ago, and he made a statement. He said, I no longer try to understand reality. All I want to do is learn how to cope with it. And I thought that was fascinating. 2,500 years of the Western philosophical tradition. 2,500 years. And one of the leading lights comes to the conclusion, look, I give up. We've been trying to figure out reality for 2,500 years. Let's give it up already. We can't. For me, I just want to learn how to cope with it. And I thought that was a fascinating quote about how fruitless most philosophical speculation could be. But at the same time, you can find some gems. And I read something from Aristotle, who lived, you know, 300 years before Christ. And Aristotle said something fascinating. He said, in order to understand something, you needed to understand its causes. You needed to understand its origin. Okay, and if you know Aristotle, he had his famous, his formal causes, final causes, efficient causes, material causes. That's interesting in and of itself. But in other words, it's the idea, what caused something? How did it get here? That's how you understand something. And I thought, you know, he, they called him the philosopher. And, you know, the philosopher here had a point. I think he's right. And see, that's why I think the Bible begins. Not with the statement about eschatology, the study of last day things. Not with the statement about soteriology, the study of salvation. Not with the statement you know, of Christology, the study of the nature and deeds of Jesus. Instead, it begins with what they call protology, the study of first things, of first causes, of origins. And in this case, that origins is found in the words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, think about it for a minute. Think about it for a minute. Everything we believe, everything we believe as Seventh-day Adventists has its origins in this teaching. Nothing we believe makes any sense, I really, apart from it. How, how important is the doctrine of origins? How important do you think the, doctor, the doctrine of origins is? Now, you're Adventists. You should, have, you should know the answer to that. What evidence do we have? What evidence do we have about the importance of creation? Okay, the fact this teaching is so crucial, is so crucial that God gave us an in-your-face reminder of it. God demands one-seventh, he commands one-seventh of our lives every week. 
without exception to remind us of the second coming. Well, it's inherent in there to remind us of, but at the foundation of everything, God demands one-seventh of our lives to remind us of the importance of his six-day creation. And that's, think about it, every week without exception, we keep the Sabbath because no other, he did it for no other Christian teaching because really no other Christian teaching has any validity outside of this one. This is the foundation upon which everything we believe rests. Okay? And that's why, unlike for any other doctrine, God, for creation, demands once, right up there with thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, right up there with that, remember the Sabbath to remember God as the creator in six days. One-seventh of our lives to remind us, come on, not of billions of years of evolutionary violence and survival of the fittest, come on. No, it's to remind us of the six-day creation. Think about it. Salvation, atonement, the cross. What do these things mean apart from God having created us? What is atonement without a creator? From what are we saved from in a godless universe? And if evolution explains us, the cross is just another murdered Jew. You know, and I deal with this in my book fairly extensively. How do you make sense of the fall apart from creation? What have we fallen from to what are we restored to? You know, and it's painful for me to see what professed Christians who believe in evolution try to do. You know, I, you know, I touched on this yesterday. I touched on this yesterday, but I'm going to touch on it again because it's worth thinking about. If you go to Romans 5, I'm going to read here very quickly about Romans 5, 2, 15, 17, and 19. And as I read this, think of the direct tie between Adam and Jesus. Okay? In fact, seven times here, you've got a direct tie from Adam to Jesus. Therefore, through one man, sin entered the world. That's Adam. And death through sin. For if by one man's off offense, Adam's, many died, much more is by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to us. Now, do you, is that a figurative Adam? Because many evolutionists say Adam was figurative, because they really have no choice. They can't get an Adam in there, though I've mentioned, I'll show you one way somebody tries. So you've got a figurative Adam and a literal Jesus, unless you want to make Jesus figurative too. You're ready to do that for your precious science? You're going to make Jesus figurative too? For if one man's offense a literal Adam or a figurative Adam, reign through one, much more those who receive an abundance of grace or the gift of righteousness 
will reign in life through one Jesus Christ. Figurative Adam, literal Jesus, or is it a figurative Adam and a figurative Jesus, or is it a literal Adam and a literal Jesus? And you go through, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment, a figurative Adam or a literal Adam, came to all men resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, a literal Jesus. Okay. Now I could go on here, but the point is Paul makes a clear one-to-one correspondence between Adam and Jesus. Adam and Jesus. And he does it about seven times. But in an evolutionary model, how do you possibly come up with a sinless Adam? Okay, I've got in my book this one woman teaches at Fuller named Nancy Murphy. And she basically, and I've read others say too, well, we don't have to even worry about Adam as literal. She even denies the existence of Adam. She says, well, she just denies existence. But she's forced to, because, well, the overwhelming scientific evidence points to evolution. The PhDs, the, they all, the, the, we're, there's overwhelming evidence, we're told. Well, if evolution is true, well, you really can't have Adam. So, all right, well, you can't be, so we'll get rid of him. We'll spiritualize him away. Okay, but you have a, Romans 5 here makes that fairly problematic. Because seven times, Adam, Jesus, Adam, Jesus, Adam, Jesus. And then you just have to get rid of him. So, it's, it, it does cause a problem for them. You know, so, now anyway, as I mentioned yesterday, how many were here yesterday? Okay, we got a bunch of new ones. I'm going to run through this again, only because I think it's important, because I think it shows you, I want to do this to show you how utterly incompatible evolution is with Christian, with the Bible. I mean, I'll say it, if, if all these scientists are correct, our religion is a joke. It's a joke. It can't possibly be true, or it certainly can't possibly be anything like what the Bible says. And I, you know, and I bring this up too in another place. I touch on it in the book a little bit. Even if you were to say to me, even if you were to convince me that I don't have to read Genesis literally. I don't have to take it, you know, evening, morning, sixth day. Even if I were to accept it somewhat metaphorically, some will say, in fact, I'm writing a column, the plane coming over, I was working, I'm writing a column on this in the review. Sometimes they say, they'll say that Genesis is like a parable. It's symbolic of deeper truths. Okay, let's assume that. I don't, but I will try to grant, if in a debate with someone, I've always learned, I try to grant the other side as much as I can, just to see where it would wind up. So let me see, I'll grant you, for argument's sake, a par parabolic, 
I know that's a word in geometry. Is that an adverb, an adjective for a parable? Parabolic? I know it's a word. I know it's a word, but I, 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 I well, whatever. It's, it's a parable, whatever. I'll have to look it up. It's, it's, I'm a writer. Sometimes we make up words, okay? But I want to use it right. In fact, it was so embarrassing. I just had a column in the review called The Incredible Prophetic Feats of the Maccabean Daniel. And all the way through, I meant the word predict, predictive. And all the way through, I had spelled it predicative. <laughs> Completely different word. And I, somebody pointed it out. The good thing about online stuff is you could go in and you could fix it. You have no idea all the nonsense I've had published in print or the mistakes that you can't. But even if it's a parable, when you study the parables of Jesus, let's, just, let's go to Jesus, since we believe Jesus is the creator, Holy Spirit-inspired Genesis. There's a certain correspondence between the story, the parable, and the point you want to make. The story of the sowing of the seed. There's a correspondence there. The story of the prodigal son. There's a correspondence there to, to reality. But how in the world, if evolution is true, and Genesis was meant to be a parable of it, you know, it's almost, I'll put it this way. Let me say it this way. If I can interpret Genesis as a parable for evolution, that makes about as much sense as saying the parable of the prodigal son means once you turn away from God, no matter how sincere your repentance is, God won't take you back. Okay? Can you see my point here? You see the point here? The parables tell stories that parallel the story. But here, you've got a parable of a literal, cre a six-day creation. Everything was created distinctly after its own kind. You know, in six literal days, distinctly, carefully planned out to being a parable of something that occurred over billions of years by chance with a common ancestry. In other words, every single thing evolution teaches is completely contradictory to even a parabolic account of the book of Genesis. Can you see what I'm saying here? Does that make sense? And we're, okay, fine, it's a parable. Well, don't give me it's a parable of evolution. Give me, if you give me another creation story that in some way, you see what I'm saying? There in some way doesn't correspond to it opposite. It's almost as if you're saying, okay, whatever the parable was, whatever the points, take the opposite of it. That's how it would work. So, see, that doesn't work as well either. You can't fit it. In fact, I even wrote something a while back. Or I said something, look, why don't you people who claim to be evolutionists, claim to be Adventists and are evolutionists, why don't you just come out and say what you really think? You could say, why we have great respect for Scripture, thanks to, because of modern science, we now have to accept the fact that the first 11 chapters 
really teach us nothing accurate at all about human origins, okay? Because if evolution were true, then that's basically what you'd have to say. It's nice story, they're nice, but when terms, in light of modern science, and come on folks, it's science. How can you deny science? Our cell phone works. The planes work that fly over here. We go to the moon. Well, if you were here yesterday, you would understand a little more of that. As I said yesterday, I'll say it again, and I deal with it. The fact that a theory works, and the fact that you can make accurate predictions is a totally separate issue from whether the theory is correct or not. Okay? Totally separate issue. Whether, you know, the fact accurate predictions are a dime a dozen. You know, we come our invisible spiders from Mars. Remember that? Accurate predictions. Totally separate issue from whether it's true. True or not. But anyway, if evolution is true, that would be the honest thing to say. And let me give you an example. I touched on it yesterday. Let me touch it again. Desmond Ford. Dr. Ford has become now a, as I said yesterday, he's not a theistic evolutionist. He's a progressive creationist. And that's a little more sophisticated of a version. But it's the same thing. And Desmond Ford realizes, he realized, rightly so, and I don't have the quote here, I put it in the book. Ford argued, he said, in many ways the whole Christian faith rests on a literal understanding of the fall of Adam. Okay? He says, you pretty much, you know, the fall of Adam is central to the whole Christian faith. And again, for one of the reasons we just read in Romans 5, you got seven times linking Adam to, to Jesus. Adam to Jesus. And that's not the only place. And you understand, you know, and, and if, but if there is no Adam and there is no fall, the whole theology of the cross and Jesus coming to undo what Adam did falls apart. Ford understands that. And I agree with him 100%. But you see, Ford has a problem. Because Ford, I said, yeah, Desmond Ford said, we now live in an era dominated by modern science. That's the exact words he used. Dominated by modern science. Which means, if science says it, you have to believe it. That's the great myth of our age. So Ford says, what am I going to do? Because Ford is a perfect example. Believes scripture, claims to. But science is science. They've got overwhelming data, overwhelming evidence in every field. They claim to find evidence for it. So you want both. Well, as I said, what Dr. Ford did, and again, for those who've heard this yesterday, I do apologize, though. It might not hurt to, be, to remember it, just to show you how Christians are led around by their nose, by the world. Just another example of the world, and oh, I'm a Christian, oh, you know, Christians. I mean, it's terrible. The Christian church has been notorious for this. As I said yesterday, how do you think we got Sunday keeping? How do you think we got all that? It's Christians compromising with the world. And as I said yesterday, too, when Darwin's stuff first came out, 
A lot of the scientists rejected it. It was the Christians who were the first ones to fall in line and claim it, you know, oh yeah, we could accept that. And as I said yesterday, Ford argues. Well, let me read you. Open your Bibles to Genesis 3.24. I'll read it to you in the, actually, the Hebrew here. I'm not going to get into all the details here, but the Hebrew here is very insightful. It destroys his argument, even though he tries to make the argument from Genesis. And he drove out the man, and he made him dwell from the east of the garden, and he made dwell to the east of the garden of Edom, cherubim, with a flaming sword, spinning flaming sword, to keep the way from the tree of life. And he drove out et ha-adam. He drove out the man. Okay? And some will translate, does any of yours say Adam? And he drove out Adam? Any translation? Or the man? The man. Okay. Drove out the man. Some might say ha-adam, the man. Now, Ford's argument, listen to this, I'm not kidding you. I'll just quote it to you in a minute. His argument is that et ha-adam, ha-adam, the man, is a completely different Adam separated by a hundred thousand years from the very next verse. Let's read the next verse, Genesis 4.1. The ha-adam, ha-adam, the man, yada et hava ishto. The man knew his wife Eve. And Doc, let me read you. Here's Desmond Ford. Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 were not the parents of Cain and Abel. The idea that there are two Adams separated by vast ages may confound those who think literally. The Adam of Genesis 1 through 3 is different from the Adam of chapter 4. The Adam of chapter 1, chapters 1 through 3, is prehistory, where the Adam of chapter 4 onward lives in a world of about 10,000 years ago. The Adam of chapter 4 is a different man. Now also, notice, and the man, Adam yada et hava, Anybody you know any, who Hava is? Hava, life. It's, it's Eve. And the man knew his wife, Eve. So not only is he a separate Adam, separated by 100,000 years, coincidence of coincidences, he happens to have a wife named Eve. Now, I bring this up I don't do this to make fun of him. And I'd like to believe, I've never been a Des Ford fan. I got my start, I say, in Adventism 30 some years ago, writing books against Desmond Ford. Though on a personal level, I've met him a few times. We're pleasant enough of a chap. But, and maybe the younger Desmond Ford wouldn't have done this. But look at what? A brilliant man. You could disagree with him. 
okay? But look at what a brilliant man who's bought, unfortunately, has bought in to the great myth of our age. Because again, you got to be a fool to think our, we don't believe in myths. Every age in history has believed in myths. What, you think we don't as well? I mean, come on. Look what it's forced him to do to try to make Scripture fit with science. Can you see the point here? Can you see the point? To have to argue that, to have to argue something like that, and even then when you read, I'm not going to go to the whole thing he argues, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But he was forced to do it because he was in a conundrum. He believes the Bible, but it's evolution of science, it's true. Therefore, this is what he tries to do to make it work. Anyway, the point is it doesn't work. And, I, and, and again, we come back to this teaching of origins. Six-day creation. Because again, if you don't have the six-day creation, you don't have your sinless Adam. And without the sinless Adam, there's a direct link from sinless Adam who fell to Jesus. And when that falls apart, Ford is at least smart enough to see that. Unfortunately, this is what he tries to do. Now think about it too. Look at the Sabbath in the context of creation. You know, in every religion, people revere something holy. You know, there's shrines, holy shrines, holy city, holy people. People kiss holy land. They listen to the words of holy men. They immerse themselves or whatever gets sprinkled with holy water. These are tangibles and touchables, things they can feel, they can see. But in Genesis, what's the first thing that God declares holy? What's the first thing that, the first thing God declares holy? I just wanted to make time. What time? I have till 10.50. Okay, I'm going to have to move on this. The first thing God declares holy is a block of time. Seventh day Sabbath, okay? And you know, it's funny, the, though creation dealt with the heavens, things of earth, physical things, it was time, not space, that God first declared holy. It makes sense because time is the dimension in which all these things exist in. And also think about this too. If God had made a hill holy or a mountain holy, you'd have to go to it. But the Sabbath, the memorial of creation is so important it's so sacred, it's so important, that guess what? It comes to us. Every week, without exception, at a thousand miles an hour. I got this real cool app. It's called Living Earth. And it's a real-time thing. You can just watch this, you know, the, the, you got the planet. It's flat out, and you can see... Like, but the bottom line is I could watch the Sabbath. I don't sit there and stare, but you could watch the Sabbath move. 
right across the ocean and across the earth. You know, not just Sabbath every week, but the point, you know, just shows you where the day's beginning and ending. But the point is, the Sabbath is so sacred, it's so important that we don't have to go to it. It comes to us. That's how important remembering the creation story is. God's not going to take a chance, okay? No, I'm going to bring it to you, okay? So it comes, holy cities can be burned, holy people can be killed, you know, they, armies could sap cities and whatever. But what human being can stop the Sabbath from coming? You can no more stop the Sabbath than you could stop the sunrise or the sunset. Okay? And you can avoid holy things. You could flee. But you can't flee the Sabbath. It comes to you wherever you go. And again, I believe that, you know, that's because that's how important it is. Now, it's interesting, too. You ever notice, remember the old days? I remember when I first became an Adventist and I would meet other Christians. And they would say, oh no, Jesus changed the Sabbath. Or Paul changed the Sabbath. You know, but you know, I don't hear that much anymore. The arguments are getting, the arguments are getting much more sophisticated. And the argument you hear now is that our rest is found in Jesus Christ and his completed work of salvation for us. That's the kind of argument you hear now. I don't really hear, oh, Jesus changed the Sabbath and so forth. You know, our rest is in Jesus and to keep the Sabbath is now a legalistic work, you know, and so on and so forth. Now, maybe I'm missing something here. But somebody explained to me how the one commandment devoted to rest, the one commandment that teaches it to, to rest, that has suddenly become the new covenant symbol of salvation by works? Can you see the point here? By resting, by keeping the one Sabbath, the one commandment to rest, we're accused of trying to work our way and earn our way to heaven. The irony, the irony is too good. It's too good to pass up. And I say to people, look, anybody could say they're resting in Jesus. You know, the, anyone could say they're resting in Christ, but the Sabbath is a manifold is a overt expression, overt way to show, a tangible way to show that we indeed are resting in the work that Jesus had finished for us on, on the cross. Now, I'm, think about this for a minute. I want to think about this in terms of last day events. Every dot, everything we believe, everything we believe, all our teachings really are grounded in the fact that God created us. OK? 
everything comes, I mean, if God didn't create us, if we're here by chance or whatever, it doesn't mean anything. But all our doctrines, the foundation teaching, the, upon which everything rests, is the fact that God had created us. Okay, again, I can't think of anything we believe that makes sense apart from that. That's the foundation of everything we believe God created us. And what is the foundational, the prime foundational symbol, the bottom line symbol of, of, of it? It's the seventh day Sabbath. So you got the most foundational symbol of the most foundational teaching upon which everything else rests. It goes right back to the, the first week of creation itself, the seventh-day Sabbath symbol. Okay. Then, to usurp that symbol. You see what I'm saying? To usurp that symbol, to try to usurp the foundational teaching, you know, it, the, the thing upon which God created everything with is an attempt to usurp the authority of God at the most foundational level possible. And almost things to go any deeper, you'd have to usurp God himself. Okay, but you know, usurp God himself, you can't do that. You could try. But the most of the tangible symbol, the foundational, the seventh day Sabbath. So to attempt to usurp the Sabbath and replace it is an attempt to get behind everything God and uproot it at its core. Does that make sense to you? It's this further, only thing you'll further would be to God Himself. Now, of course, we understand in the last days that. You know, the issue is going to be faithfulness to God and love for God. But according to my, uh, uh, my Bible, that love is expressed in obedience to the commandments. And the Sabbath alone among the commandments gets behind everything else because it points to God as the creator. Okay, and what is the issue in the last day, who are you going to worship? You're going to worship the creator, the one who created everything, whose creation is symbolized at the most foundational level possible by the seventh day Sabbath, or you're going to worship the beast power, the power that actually usurped the Sabbath and changed the Sabbath and tried to change the Sabbath to Sunday. Okay, can you see my point here? The Sabbath, the foundation, you're going to worship the Creator or you're going to worship the beast, the power that tempted to change it. So you see, it's theologically, theologically, the Sabbath as the mark, as the final distinguishing point in the last days, it makes so much sense to me. The, uh, the issue, who you're going to worship, you're supposed to worship the Creator. It's, this is the bottom line symbol. You can't get any deeper than that. Or you're going to worship the beast and its, and its image. So theologically, that makes absolute, 
perfect sense to me. Now, how, you know, is Iran going to get, you know, the mark of the beast and all that? I don't know. All of those, let me tell you a quick story. I joined the church. I got converted in 1980, 79. It took me about six months after I got converted to join the church. I mean, the Adventists were intense, man. Just intense people. I was very difficult for me. I even tell people now, I've been in the church now 30-some years. It's still not a great fit. (laughs) But I tell the Adventists, you're stuck with me. I can't be anything else but a Seventh-day Adventist. No matter how, um, you know, you're stuck with me. It's never been a great fit, but that's another story. That's a culturally, you know, secular Jew from Miami Beach, Seventh-day Adventist, conservative Protestant church, please. But I remember when I got my first Bible studies about America and prophecy. This was 1979. And I thought, how in the world could America ever fulfill its prophetic role? I mean, we barely got out of Vietnam with our tail between our legs. The communists were taken over, not just in Vietnam, in Cambodia, in Laos, communists. The Sandinistas were in power in Nicaragua. Fidel Castro was sending troops to Angola. We couldn't kick that tin pot dictator out of Cuba because of the Soviet military might. The Soviet Union was firmly ensconced in Eastern Europe. Okay? In other words, the whole world, there was this massive Cold War. We couldn't do anything practically because of the Ruskies. This was 1979, 1980. And I remember thinking to myself, how could this possibly do that. Those of you who are old enough to remember the Cold War, I mean, we, we, the Russians, they had nukes at us out of the, they probably still do, but that's another. But, you know, now they greet the Russian Orthodox churches and incredible amount of influence in Russia. I could see Russian Sunday keeping easier than here. But anyway, the point, I remember thinking to myself, how could prophecy be fulfilled? And I was a new believer, and I struggled with that. And then I really felt impressed by the Holy Spirit. The Lord took my mind to Daniel 2. And I said, all right, Lord, the nations came and went just as you predicted. So you're in control. I just took a deep breath, uttered a prayer, and said, Lord, I'm going to trust you. Even though what? The Soviet Union was going to disappear? Well, amazingly... So my point on all this is, from a political standpoint, from, you know, pro, you know, the world situation, I don't see right now how it could happen, okay? But massive changes could happen very, very quickly. But again, theologically, worship the beast, worship the creator at the those basic level possible, the Sabbath Sunday thing makes absolute perfect sense. In fact, I can't, I can't see it being over anything else, considering what the things are. So now, all that being said then, all that being said, can you see why with evolution, evolution 
And it's so predominant among so many Christian churches. I mean, we're in a minority of churches that officially believe in a six-day creation. If you buy into billions of years of evolution, how serious are you going to take a day that was formulated on the idea of six literal days? You know, and then you've got the seventh day Sabbath is directly tied to the six day creation. You know, day one, two, after six comes seven. At least I got that math right. You know, <laughs> you know. so I, can you see the point here? That's why it seems to me the issue here is so foundational, is so foundational. And if we're going to ultimately have to take a stand on this, I mean, I can't imagine anyone who believes in evolution going to risk, you know, their lives or livelihood, everything, for the seventh-day Sabbath, if evolution is correct. And so that's, an, I guess I said, I don't touch on that in my book. That's not where I wanted to go with this. But for us as Adventists, if with if, if the seventh-day Sabbath directly tied to the six-day creation, and if you utterly destroy the six-day creation, what happens to the seventh-day Sabbath? Now, I have a friend of mine who's an Adventist who's adamant on evolution. And he wrote me once. He said, well, I didn't want to write till after the Sabbath. And it was a way of kind of pushing. And, and I guess, I look back now, I'm sorry I did it. <laughs> but I wrote him back, and I said, he was raised in the church. I said, look, man, get past Uncle Arthur. Okay, you see my point? You know Uncle Arthur? For, oh, yeah, some of you were, you know, the Uncle Arthur. Who here knows Uncle Arthur? Oh, yeah, see, if you were raised in the Adventist church, these were the kids' stories. And I said, you were raised on your Uncle Arthur kids' stories, because that made about as much sense to me. I said, you're keeping the Sabbath because you remember Uncle Arthur. You know, the kids' stories, you weren't keeping it because of any logical, you know, theological reason for it. So, anyway, well, that's, we're just, uh, that's about, I've run out of time here, but... You know, if you are struggling. Now, I, I, in one sense, my wife said, well, you know, coming to GYC, you're preaching to the choir. Terms of creation, evolution. I said, yeah, in many cases, but maybe not. And maybe some of you right now, maybe you haven't been exposed to it, but you get to secular college. You're not only going to be exposed to it. It's going to be assumed. See, this is the fascinating thing. I read a lot. And I read, they assume it. For those of you who were here yesterday and we looked at the paradigm, the, the paradigm is not questioned. It's assumed. And woe if you step out of that. And I remember, I'll end on, I remember before I was a believer, I met this guy, 
And he told me he believed in Adam and Eve. And I'm telling you, I wanted to punch him in the mouth. Okay. And I think it was because I just felt like, how could somebody in the 20th century be that ignorant? It was almost, I thought it was a woeful, willful ignorance that anybody in this day and age it would be like somebody told me, he, an adult telling me he really believed in Santa Claus. And I think, you know, the reason I, th and the reason I bring that story up only is because that's the kind of antipathy that a lot of people feel towards the views that we hold. You take a literal six-day creation view, you are put in the same category as flat earthers, holocaust deniers, and pyramidologists, and, and all the rest. I mean, there's an incredible amount of t antipathy out there. So to stand firm in this day and age with that, on a, and, and again, you know, it was very funny when it came to the flood, Ellen White said something fascinating. She said that some of the people who mocked Noah the most she said, these people weren't all overt idolaters. Many of them were professed believers in God. And she said, this class harangued Noah the most. And I think we would find, too, that in the, the Christian world today, some of the biggest foes we would have against the six-day creation and the seventh-day Sabbath are going to be Christians from other denominations as well. And I guess in our understanding of last-day events, that makes perfect sense as well. Well, anyway, time's run out. Thank you for coming. And if you, you, know, if you want to learn more, you can get the book. But if you want to give me more royalties, order the downloaded version. I get better royalties downloaded, and it's cheaper for you. Anyway, let me close with prayer. Let me close with prayer. Uh, just want to close. Okay. Father, I thank you for the truths that you've given us, and help us as a people to cling to these truths, and to, at the same time to have a good answer to give to those who ask of the hope that's in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.